Church family, thank you for sacrificially giving once again this year to provide almost 400 presents that you gave through our Love in Action. You remember a lot of those are our partner with our local schools, and so that 72 children will have a greater morning on Wednesday thanks to your love and action. So thank you for giving. Thank you for recognizing that as we worship as Christ followers, the way that we go about the Christmas season, it should look different because we we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, if I were to ask you to write down the top three or four things in life that bring you joy, what would you write down? Don't try to be super spiritual here, okay? I'm not saying you got to be spiritual. And in fact, if I were to give you the top four things that bring me joy, even about Christmas, they wouldn't all be spiritual, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Christmas for all the right reasons. I love that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I love that the Christmas season gives us a natural opportunity to invite people to church, to tell people about the true story of why we celebrate the story of the gospel. But if I'm being honest with you, you know what else I love about Christmas? I love the smells of Christmas. Matt mentioned just a moment ago. I love when there's baking in the oven and there's Christmas cookies that are coming out. I love when there's chocolate fudge that's being made. I love when there's candy. I love anything with sugar. Can you tell? I mean, I just love those smells that come. I also love getting the kids in the car and just going and looking at Christmas lights. It's one of the few times of the year you can just drive around and go look at certain things and and just enjoy being together in the car. But I also like even the giving of presents, and I also like getting presents too, okay? I'm not that spiritual that I don't enjoy that part. But where am I going with this? What I want us to see this morning is that the story of Jesus, beginning with his birth— but going all the way up through his life and even his death and his resurrection, that all of the events of Jesus' life, they brought pleasure to God. Now, I want us to dig into this this morning because I think that once we truly, as followers of Jesus, once we get this, once we understand that Jesus' birth and, yes, even his death, that it brought joy, it brought pleasure to God, I believe it revolutionizes how we read the Christmas story. I think it changes the the, the mindset that we have as we read about the story of the birth of our Lord and Savior. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're going to be in one chapter today, and that is chapter 53. In this one chapter of Isaiah 53, it's really a story, it's a study of the suffering that the Messiah, that the Son of God, will one day experience. Not only are we going to be in one chapter in Isaiah 53, I'm going to narrow it down to one single verse that we're going to look at this morning. I believe that in this one verse in Isaiah chapter 53, that you can take the entire story of the Bible, you can take the entire story of the New Testament especially, and you can narrow it down to the story of the gospel in this one small verse in Isaiah chapter 53. But before we read that verse, I want to make sure that we we lay a, a healthy, clear foundation. And the foundation that I want us to understand through the lens that everything that we're going to read and study this morning is that we know that there is no clear demonstration of God's love. 
There's no greater demonstration. There's no more, more pointed demonstration of the love that God has for you and for me that has ever been given throughout human history or will ever be given than through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. So with that foundation, with that understanding, let's look at that one verse in Isaiah chapter 53. And the verse is verse 10. Listen to what the prophet said. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, friends, there's so much in that one simple verse. I want us to take some time, and we're just going to walk slowly through that one verse, but I want us to specifically focus on the first part of verse 10, where it says, yet it was what? The will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to do what? To crush him. Now, who is him referring to? Jesus. The prophet is, is foretelling of Jesus. He's saying it's God's will to crush Jesus and also to do what? To put him to grief. Now, I'm not sure how you read that verse. But if you read that verse and you get to the part where it says it was the will of the Lord to crush his son, it was the will of the Lord to put his son to grief. If it doesn't make you pause and stop and say, whoa, 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 did I read that correctly? Did I really understand what that verse meant? If you don't stop, if it doesn't make you pause, I'm not really sure you understand how radical this statement truly is in the Bible. How in the world could it be that God the Father would find pleasure in crushing his son? How in the world could it be God's will that he would allow his son to do what? To be put to grief. This one verse, I believe, that is put in God's word, that Isaiah writes these words because I think it's his will for us to stop and say, how can that be? Why is it that this is what God would will? How many parents or grandparents do we have in the room? Go ahead and raise your hand. I didn't say show me pictures. I just said raise your hand, all right? Okay. Now, it's true, isn't it? If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, that you fear for your children, right? You hurt for them. It's true, isn't it, that if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, that you would go out of your way to keep them from experiencing any amount of unnecessary harm, right? Why would you do that? Why do you fear for your children? Why do you hurt for them? Why would you go out of your way to sacrifice for them so that they would not experience any unnecessary harm? It's because you love them, right? It's out of your love that your love causes you to desire to help them. It desires for you to protect them. It brings you joy to make sure that you can keep them from going down a path that you know is going to lead them to danger. Truth be told, there's not a parent or grandparent here in this room that would ever desire anything near to what we just read from the prophet Isaiah. So when we look at this verse, we first need to understand that this is a prophecy. 
It was a prophecy written by Isaiah that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. But when we read it, we have to ask ourselves again, what could be so powerful that God would be willing to subject his son to this cruel suffering? Not only would God be willing that he's saying, I'm I'm allowing this to happen, but it actually says that it would be God's will for this to happen. How in the world could God the Father allow this to happen to his one and only son? Friends, the answer is love. The answer is, is an unfathomable type of love that you and I don't even have within us. The answer is God's unbelievable, redeeming love that he has for you and for me. You say, Blake, well, come on now. How in the world can you pretend to know the reason as to why God would allow this to happen? How can you pretend to have the answer as far as to say, this is why God would will that his son would be crushed, that he would will that his son would be put to grief? It's not my words. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. It comes from a verse that my guess is that 99% of you in this room probably know by heart. Maybe all of you have heard it before. You remember the story when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? And Nicodemus asked, he said, how in the world can a man be saved? And he answered in the verse that we know as John 3, 16, where he said, for God so loved the world. Say it with me. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says that God so loved the world that what? that he gave, that he did the most radical thing that he could have done. He gave his one and only son. Please hear me on this. What this verse tells us is that God looked at our world and he saw a broken world. We talked about this if you were here last Sunday. He saw a world that was filled with darkness God looked upon a world and he saw a world that was filled with untold amounts of evil and suffering. And he saw that you and I and that all mankind, all humankind, that we were what? Broken. That we were eternally separated from him because of our sin. And yet, he was so filled with love. He was so full of grace that he was not willing for the world, he was not willing for you and I to stay in that state. Friends, I don't know about you, but that is the definition of love. See, you and I, we were were unable to help ourselves. Because of our sin, because of our willing choices that we made to be disobedient to a holy God, our sin has separated us eternally from a holy and perfect God. And the only way that you and I can be made right with God is not by us repairing it ourselves, not by us working hard enough, doing enough good things, trying to earn our way back into God's good graces. The only way that you and I could be made right with God was for God to act on our behalf. So back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. 
Friends, it was God's love that caused him to give us the gift of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. It's not a love that we deserve. Certainly not a love that we could ever earn. It was the most incredible, gracious gift that this world has ever experienced. Let me repeat this again. I know I'm saying it a lot, but I want this to soak in. I don't care how long you have been following Jesus. When I say this next statement, if this doesn't soak in and make you stop and astound you, then I'm not sure you get it. And that is that God loved us so much that he was willing to crush his son and bring him to grief. But why? Friends, because by that one death, by the death of Jesus, he would give life to millions of others. That's God's plan. That's been his plan from the entire beginning. And my my assumption is, my guess is that sometime in the next year, sometime in the next 12 months, maybe it'll be next week, maybe it's next month, but something is going to happen in your life. You are going to experience some difficulty that maybe you don't even see on the horizon today, and it's going to cause you to be tempted to doubt God's love for you. I don't know what it is. Maybe it'll be some kind of emotional pain that you're going through. Maybe it'll be a physical pain, a doctor's report that you discover something that you didn't know that you had. Maybe it'll be a relationship. You've been so close to someone, you've given and you've sacrificed for someone so dearly and they turn their backs on you and it causes a separation between you and them. you're going to wonder, where is God now? Where is God's love in the midst of this tragedy? It's coming. It's going to happen to every single one of us. So I want to dig in in this just a little bit more, but we're going to look at one other verse in the New Testament that correlates with this verse in Isaiah. It comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. You can either turn in your Bibles, you can just write this verse down, But the Apostle Paul says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the same theme here that Paul is coming from, the same aspect that what Isaiah was saying? That it was God's love, it was God's grace that caused him to give up his very own son. And friends, remember, Jesus didn't just start suffering when he was on the cross. His entire life was filled with suffering. It begins at his birth that we're in this season celebrating. He was born not in a palace, not in in a mansion filled with all the people that were coming to worship him. He He was born outside of the city in a stable, in a manger. His first bed was a feeding trough that was meant for animals to eat out of. 
And then he spent his entire life Every day he subjected himself. Remember, that Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus. He's always existed in heaven. So at Christmas, he subjected himself to come and live in the harsh realities of our broken and dark world. And Jesus didn't just suffer physically. He also suffered emotionally. I think that's what Isaiah means when it says that he has put him to grief. In that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, it says that Jesus, the Messiah, didn't say Jesus as the Messiah, that he um, would suffer, that he was despised and rejected by men. Remember that moment on the cross as we celebrate on Good Friday where Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, it was on that terrible moment on the cross not terrible for us, that on the cross, that Jesus himself became sin. The perfect son of God, tempted in every way, never sinned, but he became sin. He took your sin. He took my sin. It was all placed upon him. So at that moment, because God is holy, because he is perfect, because he can't even look upon sin, God turned his face from his own son, and Jesus experienced what it meant to be put to grief. So in Romans chapter 8, When Paul is arguing that if God would give up Jesus, if he would sacrifice his own son in this way, he says, then will he not also give us everything that we need? Church, it would make no sense for God to do this most radical thing in allowing his son to experience the most horrific death possible and then for him to turn his back on you when you are in your moment of greatest need. So Paul argues. He says here that you're guaranteed that God will be faithful to you. You're guaranteed that he will be with you. You're promised that he will walk with you even as he walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Your guarantee is not in your circumstance, but your guarantee that he is with you is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if God did this, If he was willing to crush his son, then he will meet all of your needs through Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize that at this moment, we're playing that videotape in our minds of all those times that we prayed and God didn't meet our needs. All those prayers that we prayed and said, but God, you said you would meet all my needs, but why didn't you show up at this moment? Why didn't you answer me even when I was calling out to you then? Friends, we can easily make all of our needs anything that we personally want. We can make our needs anything that we personally desire, right? Paul is not saying here in Romans chapter 8, that if you call upon the name of Jesus, that God will give you everything on your wish list. Just like you're probably not going to get everything on your wish list when you wake up on Wednesday morning. And if you do, then please adopt me into your family, all right? God's not all about just giving you your wish list. But what he's saying is, listen, God, your creator... He knows exactly what you need, and he is 100% 
committed to meeting all of your needs. Let me step away for just a minute. I want to be transparent with you here for a second. And I know sometimes there's a sense of vulnerability in saying, oh, well, the pastor should never say that he doesn't understand certain things or that he questions certain things. But there are two specific doctrines in God's word that I fully don't understand. The first is the sovereignty of God. That God is 100% completely in control. Nothing ever happens that ever surprises him. I had a teacher, Sunday school teacher in high school, and she used to say this, aren't you glad that God is never up in heaven wringing his hands and, oh, I didn't see that one coming. We know that he's sovereign. The second one I don't understand, especially how they work in conjunction with one another, is the free will that he gives humankind. That he allows you and I to make choices based on our own desires, based on our own, even our sin nature. I don't understand both of them, but listen to me. I believe in both of them with all of my heart. I believe 100% in the sovereignty of God that he's fully in control. I believe 100% that man has free will. How those fit together, I'll be honest with you, I don't think we will fully understand until we are face-to-face with him in heaven. But I'm not going to deny either of them. And you know what? Things happen sometimes in life that... I can't explain them. I don't trust that God's still in control. I don't doubt that he doesn't know what's going on, but if I'm honest with you, I just shrug my shoulders and say, I just don't understand it. Let's be honest here for a second. I'm tired of so many times we come to church and we feel like we got to put a mask on and act like everything's great and we understand everything and we didn't have that fight with our kids on their way to church. All right, let's just be honest. If we're honest with ourselves here, there is no sense in fooling ourselves of denying ourselves of the harsh realities that sometimes God brings confusing things into our life that we just don't understand and we certainly would not want. There are things that God will do in your life. There are things that God already has done in your life. There are things that God has done in my life that I simply do not understand and I will not understand on this side of eternity. It's just not going to make sense until I see him face to face. But here's what I do know. I do know that he is still on his throne. I do know that he is still in control, and I do know that when life is confusing, when life throws things at me that I don't understand, that I don't like, that I have a safe place that I can run to, that I can call out to my Savior who is still fully in control. So friends, when God seems distant, when God doesn't make sense and life doesn't make sense, when you feel as if life is throwing hardships at you and you feel like no one is understands what you're going through and God has forgotten about you, you're going to hear that enemy whisper inside of you, where's your God now? This is what I want you to do. I'm not talking rhetorically. I'm talking, I literally want you to do this when you're doubting God's love. I want you to open your Bibles and turn there, maybe even better, memorize Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Then I want you to say back to the enemy, 
He can't hear our thoughts. So let's talk about spiritual warfare here. I want you to speak it to the enemy. And I want you to say, if my God was willing to do this to his own son, will he not even now come through and meet all of my needs through Jesus Christ? Thinking about Mark and Teresa Letson, who are sitting up there on the balcony. Many of you know that on Monday night, their house caught on fire. They lost not only their kitchen, but more important than that, they lost many valuable things in their home, keepsake and memories that we all have. Teresa, it won't shock you, was at work on Wednesday. Um, and you know the first thing that she told me? She said, Blake, let me tell you about two things that God did, how God showed up. And then she proceeded to tell me two specific ways that God met their needs. Now let me ask you, why did God allow their house to catch on fire? I'm not smart enough to answer that one. Have you figured that out yet, Mark or Teresa? Nope. But here's what I do know. Within hours... CSA families, preschool families, children's families, small groups were there to meet their needs. She said that there was one church member that showed up the next day with a $250 gift card to Walmart so they could have clothes to wear for the next few days. Where was God? I think that if Mark and Teresa could speak to you today, they would say, we have seen God in the love of of the children and the families of this church. We have seen the hands and feet of Jesus that have responded even in the midst of tragedy. So let me ask you, every person here, do you live with a certain sense of peace even in the midst of a stressful situation? Do you live with a a certain sense of security even as the world may be spinning out of control? Friends, this Christmas season, it's a reminder to us once again that if God would give us his son in this manner, will he not also meet everything that you and I need? And if you don't have this sense of peace, I'm not saying happiness. I'm saying peace. Then let me encourage you this Christmas season to focus on the fact that God gave Jesus at Christmas. And friends, this is his promise. He has not forgotten you. He has come for you and he is with you even now when you feel lost, even when you feel as if everyone else has abandoned you. Before I pray and we wrap up and head home, maybe the last time before our Christmas Eve service, let me go back one more time to this verse in Isaiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Church, there you have it. That was and is God's plan for the world. The plan was that a second Adam would have to come to earth. 
The first Adam we know is an Adam and Eve. He failed the test. So God would have to send a second Adam. And who was the second Adam? We know his name is what? Jesus. And when Jesus came, he had to be willing to live in the midst of the harsh realities and the temptation of life here in this dark and sinful world. But Jesus, Jesus had to be willing to be obedient in every way. He was obedient in every thought. He was obedient in every desire, every word, every action. So many times we, we focus on the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. But don't forget, for 33 years, he lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father. And his obedience led him to the cross. And on the cross, he became the perfect Lamb of God who carried the sins of the world upon his shoulders and he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Why? So that you and I could receive God's forgiveness. So that you and I could become a part of God's forever family. But not only that, by taking your place on the cross, by taking my place on the cross, he, he imparts to us, he gives to us a right standing before God through Jesus that when we stand face to face before Jesus, that we can stand because we know that God will accept us, God will love us, not based on our actions, not based on what we bring to him, but he will see us through the bloodstained of cross of Jesus and we, he will forgive us and we will be given the gift of eternal life. If that doesn't amaze you, if that doesn't blow you away, I'm not sure we understand what really happened through Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection. As we worship the baby at Christmas that was born in Bethlehem, we recognize this little baby was destined to die. By the way, friends, as we look upon the cross... The cross is not a sign or a symbol that's of defeat. The cross wasn't a, a, a mess up. The cross wasn't a distraction or an interruption in God's plan. The cross was God's plan. This kind of love, it blows us away. This kind of love that we see where God gave his son to become the offering that would finally satisfy God's anger. What's he angry about? He's angry because he can't look upon sin and God satisfied that own uh, the debt that was paid through his son. What a plan. What a God that we serve, amen? That by the death of one, Jesus Christ, you and I have the opportunity to know and to experience eternal life. Earlier this week, I saw this picture that somebody posted on Instagram, and it literally blew me away. In this picture, you see you've got Eve, and Eve is covering with her long hair her nakedness, which represents her shame Remember, she recognized that it was when she ate from the fruit, she had shame. And look, she's holding her sin. She's holding that fruit in her hand. And notice what's wrapped around her leg. What is that? The snake, as if sin still has control of her life. But then she's touching the stomach of Mary, and inside of Mary, she holds the second Adam. 
She holds the Savior of the world, and it's almost as if Mary is looking at Eve saying, it's all right. God has redeemed your brokenness. And don't miss where Mary's foot is. She's stomping on the foot of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, the gospel right there in one simple picture. Friends, no matter what you're facing today, no matter what you are going to be facing in the coming months, I hope that you'll hold on to this powerful verse that's found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Don't ever forget, God's love is so faithful. God's love is so powerful. God's love is so incredible that he would even allow, he would even will that his son would face the most cruel suffering, that he would face an unfathomable death. Why? So that we could have eternal life. And friends, if God would do such a thing as this, then we can take comfort in knowing he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you in your moment of greatest need. This is why we celebrate at Christmas. Church family, it's more than lights. It's more than cookies. It's even more than all of the packages that you're going to open on Wednesday. It's God's promise that he has come for us. God incarnate, here to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. God is with us. Let's pray together. God, all we know to say in response to the gift of Jesus, the gift of your son, is thank you. Thank you, as Paul said, for this indescribable gift. The gift of your son, which is a promise that you will never leave us, that you have come and that you are here even in our agony, in our pain, in our suffering, even in our loneliness, we know that you are with us. And that gives us hope. Lord, thank you that you didn't just send your son to be an example. You didn't just send Jesus so that he would be a good teacher for us, but you sent him so that he would become the perfect lamb of God who would take upon our sins upon his shoulders, that he would pay the debt that we owed so that we might be made right with you. 
Because of that, we can boldly, yet humbly come before your throne, not as a stranger, not as an acquaintance, not even as a friend, but we come before you and you call us a son or a daughter of yours. I pray that we never lose a sense of awe of what happened that started at Christmas and continues even through today. What a gift that you have given us through Jesus. He is all that we need. He is all that we long for. And you have freely given him to us. And we say thank you. I pray that as we move forward in the next few days, that the Holy Spirit would keep us focused on you. The Holy Spirit would keep us focused on why we celebrate during this time of year. And Lord, I pray that if there is even one person in this room that does not know you in a real and personal way, that today they would find salvation. Today they would find hope by confessing their sins, admitting that there's nothing within them that should cause them to be called a son or a daughter of yours, that they would call out to you and they would ask for you to forgive them. They would believe that you sent Jesus the perfect Son of God, to die upon the cross so that they might be forgiven. They would call upon Him believing that He rose from the dead three days later and He's alive today, and they would commit to living for Him for the rest of their life. Lord, give them the courage and the conviction if you're calling them today. For the rest of us, may we live a life of obedience. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.